Welcome back, kids. Uh, welcome back from commercial break. We are in studio with Miss Chalet and Carlisha Brown. Welcome hello, to Sidebar. Hello. 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 Good, good Thank to, you for having us. Thank you for both coming on. So we're here to talk about this increase in violence uh, against trans women, specifically in the African American community. What? Tell us what's going on out there. So, right now, um, trans women, especially Black trans women, are just being targeted. Um, towards violence and um, hate crimes and it's just an epidemic because we're losing at least 20 trans women a year um, in the black community black yeah. community wow. yes yes it's and horrible. these are only um, trans women are, that are actually documented you know we have many cases that are missing persons and generally if they're not found in 72 hours they're usually dead um, and we also have an issue with um, officials misgendering um, trans people so some cases that are actually trans women they're not being documented properly so they're not being included in the totals mm. so it's actually upwards to 50 um, black trans women that have lost their lives mm. why is that why well, I mean do you think it's a overplay of not only transphobia but racism on top of it or Carlisha what do you think um, I don't know if it's it's a very interesting and super layered situation. What we know specifically with the, uh, Ms. Booker, who just lost her life, she was uh, a trans woman who was seen on social media. So right now there's just a really interesting time with, as we say, uh, there has been you know an increase. But the reality is this has been a continual reality within the community as uh, LGBTQ as a whole. But... Um, with this specific case, it was documented, and we got to see her get mauled by a group of people, right? And then after her being assaulted in Texas, then thereafter, now she has been murdered. So she now, murdered it, by somebody that was probably involved in the brawl, right? Is that what we think? There, it's Possibly. all speculation. Right. It's all speculation. But what we know now that we're focused on this case specifically, and to your point, is it racism? Is it a community opportunity? What we know now is... Uh, these situations are brought to the forefront and then kind of also brushed to the side. But because this has been documented, documented by way of social media, it's now in society's face that whether it was the person who assaulted her or not, the way that we're killed and then the way our stories are brushed to the side is the actual reality. So like we're saying that the, the 20 plus that are happening every year, as they happen, the story kind of comes up, then it goes back down and then maybe we're talking about, you know, Kim Kardashian's fourth baby and how, however that was no but it's I can guarantee the, you I've never talked about Kim Kardashian not you specifically yeah. not you're just one person in right. this whole whole system of you know pop yeah, culture of course but the reality is that our stories come and then our stories go and they're not really a topic of conversation whether it's racism whether it's a community opportunity it's happening and the real opportunity is those who are held accountable and what we're doing with the accountability as well as the rallying of community and, and truly standing for us. It's trendy when it's a conversation like Pose. But then when you start talking about the uncomfortable realities surrounding the black trans woman, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, oh okay, well, let, let's, you know, let's pivot here and talk about something a bit more glitz and glamour. Yeah. There's a rally tonight in Los Angeles, right? Six o'clock? Yeah, yeah, six o'clock at Los Angeles City Hall, um, which is first and... 
Uh, I think it's Temple. Temple, Spring, right right down there. Right, spring right. and First. First and Spring <laughs> is actually okay. what it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so this is just an opportunity for community to come together to mourn the lives of the transgender women that are gone, but also to celebrate the lives of the trans women that are here, um, to give the roses to, you know... Um, our trans women while they're here you know there's other there's a lot of trans leaders that are here and doing the work that are often not recognized Mm -hmm. and so it's also important to do that and to also band with community our cisgender community gender non-conforming and the whole spectrum so we can figure out ways to combat this problem right. you know what I mean because we can't do it by ourselves we need space um, safe space to do this to figure out actions in order to solve the problem yeah to me I think one of the biggest problems the Trump administration they're really going after the trans community I mean in terms That's of the LGBT really fantastic really point yeah. that you made what we know is within the Trump administration as a whole when we think about black queer folk there has been a 200% increase on black gay males as far as hate crimes are concerned. And then we also ha- saw a tremendous spike for black trans women as a whole as far as hate crimes. And it's just so interesting as we, you know, this country, we're supposed to like separate religion and state and what have you. We've been allowed to use religion as an umbrella to support the hate or even, you know, ch- uh, kind of use it as the charge behind the conditions of how we see, you know, those that don't fit into a certain box of society. This administration as a whole, what we know, has caused so much, I'm going to say transparency of what America truly stands for. I would I would actually say the same thing. If anything, um, it has brought about a sense of honesty. Whew. You know what I mean? Like now people are showing their true colors. You know, yes, the hate is real, but there's also poverty. There's also homelessness. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that especially the black trans women, uh, the community um, are faced with. You know what I mean? And we don't have anybody speaking for us. Yeah. I mean, not that we need anybody speaking for us. We want a seat at the table. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we can actually say what we need. You know, how do you know what we need if you're not asking us? Right. You know, the homeless issue you just brought up, HUD, which is run by an African-American man, Dr. Ben Carson, mm-hmm. just came out with a policy allowing homeless shelters to ex- exclude trans women and trans men under religious exemption. Exactly. And that's what, do, terrible. It's, terrible it's awful. That's the, that's yeah. the whole situation is this this religion, um, not, not religion, re- just a religious energy behind how we're making de- making our decisions in this world. What it's I know, the construct. Yeah, what I know is we all have the right to worship who we choose to worship. We all have the right to identify how we choose to identify. We all have the right to sleep with whom we choose to sleep with. But when you start taking on someone else's choices and telling them that in their space they're not okay, that's the problem. What we know is yes. there are several religions globally. How am I to say that your book is... is correct over my book or my book's correct over your book. There's a lot of opinions and uh, I just ideology ideologies that people are running with that is creating a very unsafe space for everyone. We've seen a band against Muslims. We've seen how we're treating immigrants. We're seeing how black men are being brutalized by the police. It's it's on a level right now where people are finding ways and loopholes to support ignorance and and just unethical behavior as right. a whole. And we're just in a very scary time because... Yeah. 
Well, this is why Thomas the Jefferson and the founders put in a wall of separation between church and, and state. Because yeah. they saw what religion... It's still there. I mean, it's still there if we have to fight for it. Because we have to acknowledge some churches are actually pro-LGBT. Not every church is evil. This I know that true. there's churches and like Reverend Carl Beans. We were talking about Carl Beans before we got started. You know, started the Minority AIDS Project. So are some churches and synagogues that are supportive. And I, I guess that's the question. On a religious war, do we take our religion against their religion or do we just try to keep it out completely? It's a good question, right? Well, we know that uh, there are the, there, there's the, there's the rule and then there's the, ex, is, how do you say that? It's the rule. Exemption. Religious exemption. Example. No, where there's like, you're saying Carl Bean, there's, that's one church, right? right? Oh, and then correct. we're saying the overall, the overall idea of religion, unfortunately, comes with conditions when it comes to people who are outside of the narrative of what these churches deem. I'm not going to speak on a specific religion. I'm right. just saying religion as a whole. Right. So the reality is worship however the fuck you choose to worship, right? What it, but on the flip side, if my religion doesn't you know, jar with your religion, that doesn't give you the position then to tell me that my life is wrong over your life. Because right. now you're taking on a position by way of whatever book you're, you're choosing to, you know, to, to operate in where you're not even supposed to have judgment. So it's just this really interesting, again, these are the layers right. of opportunities when it comes to just being a queer person of color. So we're talking to Carly Brown and Michelle A. here on Sidebar with John Duran. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Sisters are doing it for themselves. Annie Lennox of the Eurythmics. I picked that song for you two. Oh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> it is the right so song. Perfect. It is perfect. The right song. Yeah. You know, it reminds me, in the early days of the LGBT movement, lesbians were specifically excluded from the women's movement. Like mm. now, the National Organization of Women did not want lesbians. There was not even a conversation about trans women back then, back in the 70s. But it feels like today, that's one of the battles that's going on, is the inclusion of trans women. Absolutely. Not only in the LGBT, but in greater society as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, man, just like uh, the the lesbian groups, or even, you know, before, it was against the law to be gay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Until so 75 right, in California. But so you know right what? now it is our time to speak up yeah. and be included, you know what I mean? And be visible and to say that our lives do matter. And it's not a sense of trying to ask for space, but affirming that we are here and our lives actually do matter. And we are are going to be loud about it, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Uh, because it's not going to change unless we band together and make some noise. Mm -hmm. Carly, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I think that that's really interesting that we can say that, you know, lesbians weren't a part of the women's movement or trans uh, folk not really being included at the table. I feel like that's a very uh, European-American, like, idea. W when we think of, for example, Jules Nightclub opened in the 70s and mm -hmm. then, you know, being a part of the AIDS epidemic, we saw the black trans women, no, black lesbians 
become of service to the black gay males who were ostracized for who they were and what they were at that mm-hmm. time in history. And then mm-hmm. to take that a step further, when you think of the ballroom scene, the ballroom scene being a black queer um, POC space that's very inclusive of the trans person. And mm-hmm. in those spaces, those are the communities that are mourning these folk. These are mm-hmm. the communities that are standing up for, you know, just being black and queer today as a whole. And historically, these are the spaces that are kind of reserved for us. And again, like I say, a whole industry has been built on the back of black queer folk. But, you know, as we glamorize uh, pieces of the black queer narrative, where are these people that are saying that who we are today is now to be celebrated, showing up in situations like Miss Booker, who just lost her life, where are your voices? Mm-hmm. Very true. You know, uh, Connie Norman was an AIDS activist with ACT UP LA, a very dear friend of mine. And when she died in the epidemic, uh, I made her a promise that she asked me, said, please take care of my girls after I'm gone. Mm-hmm. That's what she was telling me. Gosh, take right. care of trans women. And that's why we have a trans flag in West Hollywood that flies 365 days a year and created the first trans advisory board in the nation and trying to, to do exactly what you're saying. Awesome. Because a lot of people don't realize, but Stonewall Inn, since we're all talking about Stonewall yes, here, 50, and it's really interesting <laughs> That all years. this is happening yeah. and we're at the 50-year mark, yeah. but how much right. progression well, have we really made? Well, and the history is, the first punch was thrown by Stormy Larvery, who was an African-American lesbian. A black lesbian threw the first punch. Interesting. The first brick was thrown by Marsha Johnson, who was a black trans <laughs> woman. Yes, exactly. And the first Molotov cocktail was thrown, thrown by Sylvia, Sylvia Rivera, Rivera, a Latina. Mm-hmm. Interesting, So it right? was all women of color that got that the, the get everything going at Stonewall. Don't, yeah. don't we do it every <laughs> We do it every time. We do it every time, yeah. but that, it needs to be recognized, yeah. and that's the thing. We yeah. we need to be recognized for and that. respected. If and you respected, really want to know yes. what's going on in America and you want to check the temperature, they always say tune into a, a black woman, a black trans woman, yeah. a black lesbian woman, because yeah. we're going to be honest about what we truly need to survive in a space where we're constantly being suppressed and told to show up. However, it's most digestible by America. Yeah. Right? Are you two native Angelinas? Were you both born and raised here? Or no. Bay Area. My last guest today is Cleve Jones from San Francisco. Is my I final love guest that. today. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we made our way down here about ten years ago, plus ten plus years. Fourteen. Okay. Oh, okay. So <laughs> Oakland, San Francisco. What Oakland part of the Oakland? Me. East She's Oakland. Oakland I'm from exact. Sacramento, but most of my stopping was in Oakland and or uh, San Francisco. Got it. Yes, yeah. but Oakland stand up. So tell me what it was like to be a young trans woman in the black community in Alameda County or in Sacramento County? Ooh, it was very, very tough. Um, So I'm from East Oakland, deep East Oakland, which is like 98th and East 14th. And so that is like hyper masculinity, like, um, you know, um, um, just like Black Panther on steroids. (laughs) Well, hold on, pause. I don't think Black Panther, we're going to use that as a negative. No, oh no, I love Black Panther. So I own a copy. That's how much I love it. Toxic masculinity and you well, said Black well, Panther. Even, well, even the original Black Panthers was a movement um, to yeah. um, connect and f- to do for our own community. Um, but yeah, so growing up, 
um, in Oakland was very hard, you know, with bullying and where you're supposed to be, you know, this um, man, you know, a black man especially. So anything outside of the norm was basically like you got a kick me sign on your back. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. people would just come at you just for being any type of effeminate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to grow very thick skin very quickly mm-hmm. um, and fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, the bullies in the neighborhood? What, oh, absolutely. What about family, church? Family, too. Yeah. Church, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was bullied uh, by family. Um, I was kicked out of my house um, at 15. Uh, it was it was a it was an issue. It was a hard life to live, but it definitely um, made me who I am now. You mm-hmm. know what I mean. And so my focus now is yeah, I went through that, but healing is important. You know, mm-hmm. to get rid of those traumas that you go through in order to recognize your own strength and what you can give to the community. Right. Um, Carly, short about you growing up. I, you know everything that she's saying. I think is a, a very normal narrative for a trans person of color. Unfortunately, the structure of the black community and being so disenfranchised and being so complicated and being so layered with trauma, it is hard to be outside of the norm as we're trying to push this agenda forward to include us and look at us as human beings. And so when you are different in these spaces, it's very challenging. Um, But most trans women of color who have grown up and are you know, outwardly themselves have to deal with the molestation, have to deal with the child abuse, have to deal with, you know, the societal pressures. But what we also have to deal with is when we decide to, for me, the breaking moment for me when I realized don't no one give a rude toot about me but me was when I was assaulted in 10th grade by a gentleman walking down the street. I didn't even see him coming and he sucker punched me so hard that I could hear the ringing in my ear for like a half hour. Mm. We called the police. The police walked in as he is taking down the story. He's giggling through it. Now you tell me, am I supposed to call the police for protection or to be ostracized? Because that's what I felt in that moment. So what I know from a societal standpoint in that moment that the community is not there for me and the people who are supposed to be there for me are absolutely not there for me. And then when the pen moves from the paper to say, well, what were you doing? You f- yes, part you, of my friend. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I was walking down women, the street. <laughs> I was walking down the street. Right. And it, but we're often looked at as the victim and the aggressor. Mm. So it's... You, you can't you can't call you the can't police win. you can't you can't you know, ask anybody for help because it's not gonna you're not gonna get it we it's have not. less than a minute left tell us about websites or checking out your organizations <laughs> okay well, yeah so we are representing the UWC um, the Unique for, Women's okay. Coalition and you can check them out at the UWC.org and also Flux um at AHF um, and also the Trans Latina Coalition will is helping um the rally tonight, which is tonight at 6 p.m. at First in Spring. As well as we want you guys to be um, all in the loop that the Trans March of Visibility, which will be our, like a first of many, just kind of putting us on the map. And if you are an ally, if you want to stand with us, that is September September 27th and September 28th in Washington, D.C. Mm. This is the time to put your 
your your words into action. Like, are you a talker or are you a walker? So instead of just liking a picture and scrolling, how about you put on a T-shirt, get a picket sign, and say enough is enough. That's awesome. You got. Thank you so much, Carlisha Brown and Michelle. Thank you both. Did I say that right? Yes. You okay. Got it. Cool, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us here on the sidebar. Good luck at the rally tonight at six thank o'clock. You. Thank we you. We hope so to much. see you there. You'll be yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. I won't. I'll tell you why. <laughs> when we come back, Vanessa Romaine, black lesbian power dyke from Long Beach Pride, and uh, Steve Genzel. Thanks for tuning into Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all right now jason being a millennial you have no idea who was just singing do you not not a clue who was just singing. nope i have no idea <laughs> that was miss holly near uh singing we are gay and lesbian people we sing that at all our marches I love it. A little FYI for the millennial. My FYI for the millennial moment. Welcome back, gang. We are in studio with Vanessa Romaine, one of the co-founders of Long Beach Pride, and Steve Ganzel, past president of Christopher Street West. Welcome, guys. Well, thank Thank you. So good to have you here. I mean, this is so great. You, Vanessa, when did Long Beach Pride get started? Back in 1984. 84? 84, yes. That was our first year that we pulled it all together met in someone's living room and said, we gotta make this happen in Long Beach. And who was there? You and Mary we, Martinez. Mary Martinez, Judy Doyle, Bob oh, Crow. I remember Judy Doyle, of course. Marilyn Barlow. Oh God, there was a friend Williamson. There were a few other folks that were there. It's all women though. Interesting to well, me, it's almost yeah, all women. Almost all women, yes. Yeah. Because yeah. we all met at the executive suite and we're talking about it one day. When executive we said suite, we, Long Beach Lesbian Bar. Yes, and, yes. Yeah. And uh, we said we needed to make it happen in Long Beach because we were tired of going to LA. <laughs> Coming up to West LA. Hollywood. <laughs> yes, and so we wanted to do our own thing. And uh, when the discussion happened in that bar, the owner of the bar said, I'll make it happen with you. Wow. So Fred Covell was his name. And what were the politics in Long Beach like for the idea of a pride in conservative Ohio by the sea, yes, Long it, Beach, California? It's, it's Idaho by the sea, for sure. <laughs> uh, it was very, um, they didn't want it to happen. They were afraid that we were going to be like West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. They were afraid that we were going to come out with all these 
outfits and naked bodies and having you're sex talking in the about bushes. you're talking about me now right? yeah right <laughs> <laughs> they had no concept they didn't know what to do right. all they knew is what they saw on television and so they didn't want that in Long Beach and so they were very 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 conservative right and they said uh, we're not gonna have it and we said oh yes we are and they tried to do everything possible with roadblocks including a $20,000 deposit that we, of course. Oh, <laughs> to try to prevent year. you from even having a parade. Yes, and so we came up with a $20,000 in cash. Oh, wow, that's, cash. that is amazing. Yes. Steve, when were you president of CSW? In the dark ages. <laughs> uh, it's been about five years now. Yeah, and, and you, I, I, you identify uh, with our leather community. Right. Yeah, very true. Right. And I know what Vanessa's talking about. Some of those images that people objected to were the guys in leather or the drag queens. That mm-hmm. if you wear, it's all about the guys in leather or the drag queens. And, and yet, that, that is part of our community. So, it was a, a really familiar conversation that people wanted us to assimilate. Mm. If we just looked like Mormon missionaries marching down the street, we would finally be accepted, which history's proven has never worked. It didn't work for the Mattachine Society, it doesn't right. work for us now. Right. But there certainly were people who were willing to buy into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, um, when was your very first parade? Was it Christopher Street West? Um, no. Okay. It well, was in San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. And what year was it, you think? Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, John, well, if I'd known there was going to be a quiz, I would have studied. <laughs> well, the first one was in 1970, because it goes Stonewall yeah. happened yeah. June 28, 1969, and a year later, Christopher Street West was formed to right. have their own pride parade and protest, and it evolved from there to become a festival and parade. My yeah. first was 78. So, Is that right? Yeah, in West Hollywood, 78. Yeah. I think mine was probably after that. Okay. Yeah, mine was 80. 80? Yes. Okay, right. Well, we were yeah. young, blossoming homos at about the yes, same time. definitely. <laughs> all in the closet, of course. Yeah. Uh, we didn't uh, step out at all at that point in time. Yeah. What's interesting to me about Long Beach, the way you described it, is that all the women of color that were in the lead, because I think that there's this misconception uh, this narrative that goes on that it's all white gay men that do everything. Well, it and, was. Yeah. It was in the West Hollywood and the other areas of the community because they had the money right. and they could stand up. Right. Um, but in Long Beach, we kept it strong because at that time was the AIDS crisis. Yeah. And we lost a lot of our brothers. 84 is when Long Beach got started? Yes. That's yes. just when the things were starting to pick up. Yes. And so with losing a lot of our brothers, we had to step forward. And that was our main thing is stepping forward. Uh, the organization Southern California Women for Understanding oh, stepped yes. forward yeah. as a leading force to raise money for AIDS. And so Long Beach Pride stepped right in there at the same time. But we lost a lot of our brothers and a lot of people were scared. Yeah. So they weren't coming out yeah. in Long Beach and Orange County. And that was the issue is that Long Beach is that edge of Orange County. We had a lot of people participate from Orange County, but they weren't out Right. And um, they really didn't want to be out because they were afraid. And yeah. the AIDS virus was a killer. And I don't know if you remember, but I was the lawyer for Orange County's first parade in 1989 yes. in Centennial Park in Santa Ana, which yes. happened right after uh, Long Beach, yes. I guess. Yeah. Yes, yes. Over the years, I think the parades have often reflected what's happening in LGBT community. Do you think mm-hmm. that's true? I think it's true. I know for sure that because we had such a diverse group of leaders in Long Beach, myself being African-American, Mary Martinez being Hispanic, and also of the Caucasians, we had a real diverse group of people coming out. So the parades started to come, more people started to come out who were like us and realized it was okay because they were like us. 
and they stepped to the plate and we all were out there just doing what we had to do yeah. to make a difference. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I have a quiz question for both of you. Steve, will let you go first. Critic might say, oh, the parade and festival, it's the same damn thing every year, the same floats, the same thing. Uh, why can't they spruce it up? And uh, and we have one minute left. So guess what? We're going to go to commercial break and give you four minutes to think about your response to oh, that. Oh, I already have a response. Oh, you do? Oh, I'm yeah. sure it's going to take more than 30 It'll seconds. It'll take more though. than 30 seconds to tell you. <laughs> All right, Gag. We're going to go take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Dancing in the streets. Jason, I will give you five bucks if you know who sang Dancing in the Streets. <sighs> I guess I'm going broke today. I don't know. <laughs> okay, this is way before your time. <laughs> okay, now I'm really aging myself as a baby boomer. Welcome back to Sidebar with John Duran. We are talking Dr. Steve Genzel, former uh, president of Christopher Street West, and Vanessa Romaine, one of the co-founders of Long Beach Pride about Pride. Before the break, we were talking about the critics that say, ah, it's the same thing every year. What, what would you say in response, Steve? Don't go. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, of course, it's going to be some of the same things every year because of the thing. Those are the things that often draw people. Mm-hmm. Um, but there certainly is an attempt to include new things and to be thinking about what things work. You try something, it doesn't work. You, t- you try to re- adjust it. But there's always going to be this criticism of you know why is especially the idea of commercialism, mm-hmm. and it's real simple. With 450,000 people, they have to pee someplace. Right. And nobody's given away free outhouses. Yeah. Exactly. And you got to pay for them. And, and insurance. For it. And, and fencing. And all those things. Entertainers. Yeah. yeah. The question is, is that model sustainable? Hmm. At some point, do we get to the place where it's like, this is so expensive to produce this gigantic event right. that we're losing what's really valuable. And I think when you go to places like Ventura and some of the smaller communities that are doing these really grassroots Pride events. It's an incredible uh, heartwarming experience. again. I know the city really? of West Hollywood, we just gave Christopher Street West $1.8 million right. dollars to right. subsidize Christopher Street West. Right. So, and one of the criticisms was, okay, where are we going, gang? Because it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And and they told us they just got, I think it was Netflix or some large entertainment company come in at a $100,000 donor. So, you're right. It, commercialism is creeping in. It's into but Pride. It's what's it's what's paying the bills. Something has to pay yeah. the bills, right. Yeah. And unfortunately, that really changes the nature of the event. Right. So now you're going to kind of the gay version of the county fair without it. Right. Mm. Without animals. Yeah. Well. What do you think, Vanessa? It all depends on what kind of animals you're looking at. <laughs> That's what I meant. Bears um, and otters for me. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that um, we, need it to, we need to go back to the grassroots. I believe that all this uh, capitalism and organizations and companies who take over um, make the event a little bit different from what it used to be. 
we did it ourselves. We did everything ourselves. And so when we start to pay companies to come in and do things for us, we've lost a lot. It is a big party. And it's not what it started out to be. Mm. It started out to be a place where we felt safe, that we could enjoy ourselves right. and enjoy partying, but not just a big party, everybody get drunk and have a good time. That's mm-hmm. not the way it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the big companies coming in helps financially, but I was shocked to hear that West Hollywood gives money to their uh, Pride event. Long Beach just gives not a dime. You, know, you got it a gay never, mayor in Long Beach, Robert Garcia. They don't give a dime. That's not something that it's. We're a nonprofit organization, and because of that, we have to stand fast and hold fast to not taking from our own city. I may have to call that Robert Garcia <laughs> and say, what is going on in Long Beach? You know, now that, that I'm not the president, go yeah. ahead, John. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I think that Robert has been very supportive. I think he's done everything possible. Um, but money coming from the community would probably be an upheaval of, of every organization in, uh, under the moon who's a nonprofit that would want some money from the city. Right. So it's you have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. I know for West Hollywood, what, because the criticism was constant every year. Oh, you forgot this. You didn't include that. What about this? What if, We ended up expanding to a whole month of pride, in mm-hmm. essence, with weekends and you know everything from lesbian poetry reading to art exhibition to historical presentations, the reading of Harvey Milk. I mean, so we have a whole month of Pride festivals rather than just one weekend. Right. Yeah. Right. And in Long Beach, we have a Pride Week. Um, it's expanded to that, but not further than that because it would be too, too much. It's it's a small city, Yeah. Um, but there's a lot to do and a lot of people to move around. So I think that uh, the Pride Week kind of helps with bringing all of those poetry groups, uh, other activities that go on, and the church groups put on an event. Um, there's all kinds of small events that go on throughout the community, yeah. Pride of Pride. Steve? One of the reasons that a, a group of us left the board of CSW in Mass was because it was the first time in almost 20 years that decisions about the finances lost the vision of what it was that we were doing. Mm. For all of the time that I'd been involved with the organization, every decision about finances, are we going to have to charge a little bit more, what are we going to do about this, went through the filter of what about that kid Right. Who needs to come to this event? That thirteen-year-old mm-hmm. lesbian who says, "My aunt's bringing me to this thing because she knows I need it," but they can't afford to get in. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, we went from that model mm-hmm. to turning it into music, a music festival. festival. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was an agonizing experience to watch something that was so valuable to me become something with which I could have nothing to do. No, it makes sense. Let me ask, because you both bring up really good points. So this all started as a protest parade, and then it became a place for people to feel safe. Mm -hmm. But in 2019, a lot of people... Jason's age, you know. Now Jason happens to be a straight ally, and he has no issues about LGBT whatsoever. And that's actually what we were fighting for, right? That it would become a non-issue. LGBT people today are somewhat immersed into mainstream and a little more comfortable, let's say, than we were in '70s and '80s. Is there still a reason for pride? I believe there's a reason for pride. I think there is a reason for education and to continue the education that there is a fight. That continues to go on. Mm. We are need to keep fighting. No. Um, There's so many different personalities and realities of our community now. Mm-hmm. We are not just lesbian and gay people. We're, you know, bi, trans. We've got the whole community that the queer questioning youth, people who are 
who are out there that want some place to to lay their head mm-hmm. and say I belong, mm-hmm. and it is a need to have something of that nature. Here. I tell young people two words: Donald Trump. <laughs> That's all I gotta say. The battle still goes on. Yeah. The idea that we have been that successful completely melts away the minute you talk to trans people. Mm, that's very true. We just had two trans women on right before you. And, and yeah. when you hear what they're going through yes. and what their experience is, there's no way that anybody can say, it's time for us to rest. Mm-hmm. I think that part of what Pride does is it allows us to celebrate the progress that we've made and encourage people to say, you know what, this was a lot of fun. Now let's get back in the trenches and get back to work, and we'll come back next year and see how much progress we've made. Yeah. But there is an enormous amount of progress that's still to be made. Yeah. So resting on our laurels is great if you're an assimilated, entitled white guy who has no challenges, mm-hmm. then you're done. You don't need to ever come to Pride again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, and I think the the balancing that needs to happen is making room for all the new stuff, right. but keeping the right. traditions in place. Right. Like somebody asked me, why do the dykes on bikes always go first? And so I gave them my two-part answer. Oh, first of all, because it's the dykes on bikes, and it's that people expect, and it's the roar of the engines, and we're going to start with breaking gender stereotypes right up front. And then beyond all that, you, you can't really ride a bike behind a parade entry. You need right. lots of room. Right. So the dykes on bikes have to go first. There's a third reason. Yeah. You never want to talk to them about perhaps not being in the front. <laughs> well, okay. In Long Beach, we had that conversation and we wor- worked it out where we would alternate the men and the women. And we had the satyrs when they had their mm-hmm. 50th oh, yeah. year starting. Long Beach let satyrs go first and we decided at that point in time there was a battle yeah. but we worked it out to have men and women um, move forward. I, I had to put my big heel down last year and say the dykes and bikes are going first because the trans community wanted to go first. I'm like, the dykes on bikes always go first. Mm-hmm. That is our tradition. So anyway, yes. we have to wrap it up. Will you both come back another time? This has been really sure. delightful. Would I love, love having you here. Love to. <laughs> All right. love to come back. Gang, when we come back, we'll be talking to Cleve Jones, LGBT icon. We've been talking with Vanessa Romaine and Steve Ganzel. Thank you for tuning in here on Sidebar with John Duran on Channel Q. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Oh, my God. The legendary Judy Garland singing San Francisco. And speaking of legendary Judy Garlands, we are now joined by Cleve Jones up in San Francisco. Cleve, are you there? I am. Do you like being called legendary Judy Garland of San Francisco? Do I, do I, are you there, Cleve? It seems like he dropped out. <laughs> I guess. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Okay. Let's see. Cleve, there you are. Sorry about that. Uh, Hi. No, no problem. Here, I thought you hung up on me because I, re- I, re- I referred to you as Judy Garland. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm Mike. <laughs> How are you? I am doing good. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. 
Oh, thanks for having me. So, you know, I love and adore you, and I know, I think, just about almost everything to know about you because uh, we go back a very long time. But I know that we have a lot of millennials who listen in and even the generation right behind them who listen in, and they may not be as familiar with Cleve Jones. So I guess I got to go back to your days with Harvey Milk and, and how you got politically active and started in San Francisco. Well, sure. I uh, hitchhiked up to San Francisco from Phoenix uh, when I got out of high school uh, back in the early 1970s. And I had a pretty rough beginning. I was kind of a street kid and uh, barely surviving. But I met some of the great heroes of our movement, uh, women like Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, and of course, Harvey Milk, who mentored me and got me to cut my hair and stop selling weed and go to school. So I went to... (laughs) San Francisco City College first, and then San Francisco State. And I was going to be a film major, but Harvey uh, looked at some of my work and told me that I had absolutely no talent and persuaded me to change my major and took me with him to City Hall when he was elected uh, for an internship. So I got to work with him for 11 months until he was shot. And uh, then that really sort of fixed my course and I got very involved in politics. You did. And, and I know you, you ran for San Francisco Board of Supervisors, right? Yeah, way back in 92, when we still had citywide elections, I ran. And, you know, I came very close. They, uh, we elected six. I came in seventh. I missed it by just a couple of hundred votes. But looking back, I think uh, I'm grateful that I didn't win because as I was campaigning, I was getting sick. And shortly after that, I got very ill and I uh, was pretty much out of it for a couple of years until, thanks to ACT UP, uh, as you well know, we were able to get uh, expanded access to medications that were then in cl- clinical trials. And that's what really saved my life. So when I wrote my book, When We Rise, I started by saying the movement saved my life. And that's not rhetoric. That's not hyperbole. I would not be speaking with you today if it wasn't for the hard work and courage of so many activists over so many decades. Well, you and me both. Uh, you know, I was uh, Act Up's lawyer here in Los Angeles during the late 80s, but I, too, got very sick in 93 and thought that I was like a lemming about to go over the cliff with everybody else uh, due to HIV. And uh, then protease inhibitors hit, and uh, I didn't. I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah, still here. The AIDS quilt. I, I mean, I think so many people know the story of the Names Project, and, and I know the story, but can you just reflect on that for just a bit? Yeah, I'm happy to, and I, unfortunately, I think most young people are not aware of it because it's kind of been rendered invisible uh, in recent years. I'm hoping to change that. But um, I had the idea for the quilt at a candlelight memorial for Harvey Milk, back in 1985 when the death toll in my city, San Francisco, had just reached a thousand. And if you could imagine, I'm sure many of your listeners have been to the Castro area of San Francisco. Ultimately, we lost over 20,000 of my immediate neighbors in this neighborhood, this, you know, this very tight, uh, cohesive neighborhood. And uh, back in 85, when the death toll hit a thousand, I was very struck by that figure. So at the annual candlelight tribute to Harvey Milk and George Moscone, I asked people to carry signs with the names of their loved ones who had already died due to HIV AIDS. And at the conclusion of the annual walk, we 
climbed up on ladders and covered the federal building with these placards, with these names. And I looked at that patchwork and I thought, it looks like some kind of quilt. And I thought of my grandma and my great grandma back in Indiana and the quilt stayed sewn. And ultimately it became the world's largest community arts project. And the last time it was displayed in its entirety back in 1996, we covered the National Mall from that great expanse of lawn all the way from the steps of the Capitol to the Washington Monument. It was uh, an extraordinary work of art and a great uh, political statement and really helped, I think, change the hearts and minds of the American people and the way they looked at HIV and people who were suffering. Yeah, I think it brought in a lot of uh, allies. I mean, I know here in West Hollywood, we, we, uh, we lost 10,000 people. Uh, between 1981 and about 1994. And for a small town like West Hollywood to lose 10,000, it felt like a bomb dropped. But what really happened is uh, so many new people got involved, moms, uh, siblings, uh, college schoolmates, uh, people who did not identify as LGBTQ suddenly came to stitch a quilt. And uh, that was their introduction. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that, John, because it's one of the things that I'm most proud of uh, and most grateful for. We started the quilt about the same time that ACT UP started. And those of us on the left uh, politically and those of us who were uh, LGBTQ and, and already radicalized, you know, we were already involved. But that was a movement that needed to grow. And I think this is true of all movements, that once they stop growing, they start to lose ground pretty fast. But I knew we couldn't win this battle on our own. And I think that the quilt opened the door for other people to participate. And hundreds of thousands of people chose to walk through that door via the quilt and take up roles in activism and caregiving and I think it made a huge difference. Yeah, I do too. Look, when I saw the movie Milk and Sean Penn playing Harvey and the gorgeous actor playing you, I thought, look, I wonder what Cleve's thinking. A little kid from Indiana, (laughs) you know, raised in Arizona, watching this uh, actor play him in an Oscar-winning movie. You know, I had a bit of a say in who portrayed me, and I had just seen Emile Hirsch in... um, into the Wild, which uh, Sean Penn had directed. And I thought Emile was just so uh, incredibly talented and also, you know, absolutely adorable. And he did a, a really amazing job. My parents were still alive when the film premiered, and I got to bring my whole family to the Castro Theater. And my, my mom went up to Emile and said, you just, you look like Cleve, you walk like Cleve, you talk like Cleve. How do you do that? <laughs> an actor. <laughs> That's amazing. Did you talk to Dustin Lance Black, the writer of Milk, uh, a great deal in preparing the the script for the movie? Of course. And uh, that project originally began, uh, the original notion was actually a musical. A a mutual friend of Dustin Lance Black's and mine named Damon Intrabartolo. And some of your listeners may remember, he did a beautiful uh, off-Broadway piece called Bear. And he had this idea of a, of a musical about my friendship with Harvey. And he brought in Lance to work on the book so he could focus on the music. Well, that didn't go anywhere. But in the meantime, I had uh, taken Lance to San Francisco and introduced him to, to all of the people who knew Harvey who are still around. 
so he had amassed quite a bit of material, and he did the script, and uh, we took it to Gus Van Sant, and he agreed to direct. So it was quite a, an adventure, and I am so grateful for that. And, you know, Sean Penn, uh, his portrayal of Harvey was so spot on. There were so many times during production when my hair just stood on end. It was just uncanny how he... Uh, it didn't just, uh, you know, pretend to be Harvey. He sort of channeled Harvey in a way that was amazingly powerful. Hey, when, uh, Cleve, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the future of the LGBTQ movement, if you don't mind. So, so holding on for a quick commercial break. Uh, thank you all for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran. We'll be right back here on Channel Q. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Thank you, Jason. Rise up. Cleve, I picked that song for you, given your new book, When We Rise, which is phenomenal, by the way. Thank you so much. Yeah, Awesome. You know, a lot of young people uh, come into the show, and, and, and I'm so inspired by them because they're just as angry as I think you and I were at one time. <laughs> I've, mellowed, I've mellowed a bit. But, uh, you know, you, I think when we get a little older, like you and me, we have the perspective. A of, lot older. <laughs> okay, don't rub it in. Well, we get the perspective of having some life lessons that we've learned along the way. And what, what would you say to the young LGBTQ activists out there who who are probably enraged with Trumpism and its impact, especially in our trans community, and and wanting to look to you as an elder to say, what do we do? Well, what I usually say to young people is that I'm I'm quite sure that each and every one of them has some special gift that they can bring to our struggle for justice. And what I would encourage them to do is to find some way of contributing that also brings them joy. Uh, I love what I do. And because that, I have endured over the decades. Uh, and I think that people look at me and look at my work and they say, this guy loves what he does. Uh, some things take a very long time to achieve, and no victory is ever permanent. We always have to be on guard. We always have to be pushing the envelope. So my suggestion to young people is to look within yourself and be attentive to, to, attentive to those little clues that appear that can show you what is that special gift that you bring. Maybe you're a caregiver, maybe you're a media person, maybe you're a researcher, maybe you're an inspirational speaker, uh, maybe you're a political strategist, but every one of you has something that you can bring to this. And if you love what you do, then you can sustain the work year after year after year. Oh, that's beautiful. I noticed, and a lot of the work you're doing now with Unite Here, and I, I and I think the relationship we have with labor goes all the way back to Harvey and the Coors Beer boycott. Can you talk a little bit about your work with labor and Unite Here, and and maybe even a bit about the Coors boycott way back when. Yes, uh, the Coors Beer boycott, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. Often I hear young people say, well, boycotts don't work. Well, actually, boycotts can be extremely effective. Uh, I think of the Montgomery bus boycott that was launched by Rosa Parks, for example, or the uh, grape and lettuce boycotts launched by Cesar Chavez. But 
uh, back in the 70s, we teamed up with the Teamsters of all unions, and we got Coors beer out of every gay bar in North America. And this was before the Internet, by the way, uh, because Coors had racist and homophobic anti-union policies. The Coors family was a notoriously right-wing extremist family funding all sorts of crazy people. It was a powerful boycott that took a huge chunk of their market share. And to this day, uh, that company, which is now you know, merged with another, feels obliged to make contributions to the community because of that. So uh, that was pioneered by Morris Kite uh, in L.A. and Harvey Milk in San Francisco and a wonderful gay labor activist here in San Francisco named Howard Wallace. I was already a supporter of unions, but for the last 15 years, I've been working with the hotel workers. The people I work for are mostly immigrants, mostly women. Think of the women that clean the uh, rooms in the hotels you folks stay in. Think of the people that put the food on the airplanes, workers in food service, uh, uh, the casinos on the Strip in Las Vegas. That's who I work for. And I love the work because... Uh, one thing that drives me nuts right now is people spend a lot of time talking about talking. And they spend a lot of time talking about our vocabulary and how many initials to add to the acronym and how many stripes to add to the flag. In my union, we negotiate contracts through collective bargaining that protect transgender workers from discrimination on the job in places like Georgia and Texas and Florida. And we provide them with the health care that they so desperately need. So in my union, we see that we are delivering really substantive results to folks that can transform their lives. We recently concluded a very uh, long, intense strike against the Marriott Corporation, one of the, it is now the world's largest uh, hotel company. And at the end of that, uh, after thousands of workers walked off the job in eight cities, some of those workers ended up with a 40% uh, pay increase and uh, reduced workload, better health care, and women employees were given uh, panic buttons, GPS-based panic buttons to help protect them from the appalling level of sexual abuse and assault that those women experience while doing their jobs that are already tough. So I love the work and I love the alliance between LGBTQ and labor. It's a, it's a powerful coalition and, and really winning important victories. I wonder if you would comment on uh, Nancy Pelosi. So Speaker Pelosi, representing San Francisco, seems to be the antidote, at least at the moment, for Donald Trump. And I know we've had both good and bad happen with Nancy Pelosi over the years, but what what would you say about what's happening in Washington right now, the struggle for power? Well, you know, I've, I've disagreed with Speaker Pelosi on a number of issues over the decades, but she's a, uh, she's a brilliant woman. And I think what we're seeing right now is that she's closing in for the kill. <laughs> and I, uh, I know that many people wanted to see uh, new blood in the leadership, and I was among them. But in terms of this particular woman, Nancy Pelosi is, in my view, the uh, ideal person to be in that position right now. And I think that the weeks ahead are going to be fascinating. Um, I should also say, full disclosure, that Nancy Pelosi was one of the very, very first people to embrace the concept of the AIDS Memorial Quilt. She actually held the very first fundraiser for the Names Project in her home. And uh, without her, we would never have been able to get permission from the National Park Service to display the quilt. So 
I consider her a friend, uh, an ally, and I'm, I'm glad that she's the one that is sort of the, the tip of the spear as we fight back against Trump and everything that he represents. Yeah, I agree. Our trans community seems to be bearing the brunt of Trumpism right now. Um, any, any message you give to members of our trans community who are out there listening who are feeling like they've got a big red target square on their back? Well, they do, and they should be uh, very concerned. We should all be very concerned. Uh, but I think trans people should also be celebrating how far they've come just in the last decade. I think it's quite remarkable, actually, how uh, successful their part of our movement has been. But there's something even more frightening to me than Trump. Or, or maybe, let me rephrase that, more complicated than Trump. Trump is a pretty clear evil, and I think most of us have, have already figured out what we're doing to fight back against him. But there's something else I'd like your listeners to think about, and that's the, the demise of the neighborhoods. And this has sort of been glossed over with kind of trivial stories about straight people coming into gay bars and, and that kind of nonsense. But the reality is that the gay bars are going away. In San Francisco, finally, a lesbian venue has reopened after years without one. We have probably maybe a third as many gay LGBT venues as we had when I got here in the 70s. But the reality is that the neighborhoods are going away. And some people say that's because of technology, that because of Grindr and Tinder, we don't need these physical meeting spaces. Some people say it's because we're so accepted everywhere, we can live anywhere we want. But I think the reality is that the the... The the, the, the the very rich are taking the inner cities, and it's a complete reversal of the role that inner cities have played for generations in this country. They, the inner cities were where the refugees landed, the recent immigrants, the bohemians, the gays, the artists, and now it's so expensive. So in my town, uh, the neighborhood is going away, and the same thing is happening in your town. It's happening in Seattle. It's happening in London. It's happening in uh, Washington and in Philadelphia. And when we lose those neighborhoods, it's not just about losing gay bars. It's about losing the political power that comes when we're concentrated in certain uh, precincts and, and districts the ability to elect our own and defeat our enemies. We also lose that amazing cultural vitality that happens when we're inhabiting the same space. Uh, here in San Francisco, you know, I don't want to brag on us too much, but my neighborhood produced the first gay synagogue, the first gay chorus, the rainbow flag, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, the AIDS Memorial Quilt. It's because we were living together and collaborating and uh, and then thirdly, when we, when we lose the neighborhoods, we lose the ability to provide the specialized social services most urgently required by the most vulnerable among us, particularly transgender people, our young people, our senior citizens, people living with HIV AIDS. Those folks need specialized social services, medical care, psychological support. And when we lose the neighborhoods, we lose the ability to provide that. So I hope that any young people that are listening might start thinking about the change that's going to come. We've seen extraordinary change in the last 50 years since Stonewall. We're going to see that change be even more complicated and accelerated in the 50 years ahead. What are the institutions and organizations and strategies that will continue our growth even as we are increasingly dispersed 
due to gentrification and the displacement that follows. Cleve, you have just given us a topic to have you come back, and I'm going to bring somebody (laughs) from the village in New York and me. The three of us are going to have a conversation about protecting the neighborhoods. We've got to cut it off now because we've got to go to the top of the hour, but thank you, Cleve Jones, for joining us. My hero, I love you. Thank you for all of your great work and service to our community. Hope to see you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to us here, Sidebar with John Duran on Channel Q. Welcome back, gang. My gosh, what an incredible day this was. I I have to tell you, there are some days I like better than others in terms of sidebar. And this was one of those days. What a just incredible list of guests. Starting out with our two uh, black trans women uh, talking about the violence and the hatred against uh, trans women, uh, uh, Ms. Brown uh, and, uh, and Ms. Chalet, uh, who came on and that are leading a protest rally uh, this evening in downtown Los Angeles fighting for trans women, especially in the African-American community, to be free from hate and violence. And then getting to hear from uh, black power lesbian Vanessa Romaine on starting the Long Beach Pride Festival, which is the second largest festival here in the state of California after uh, West Hollywood's Christopher Street West, which is next weekend. And Dr. Steve Ganzel from the leather community. And then finishing off with uh, the historic and legendary Cleve Jones. What an incredible day. And so... Um, I, I I just you know I've just gotten goosebumps everywhere because these all these people were so good and so reaffirming about our community, our people, our struggle, and where we are heading. And uh, you know all through the month of June we'll be talking obviously about the anniversary of Stonewall, but I I just want to highlight something because if you didn't notice uh, today was a, a lot about women of color here on Sidebar, and. Um, June 28th, uh, 1969, at the Stonewall Inn at 1 in the morning. It was a hot summer night at the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street. Judy Garland had died within the past week. People were already a little cranky. And uh, the police came in, New York City police came in for yet another raid. And and, uh, a raid, not because people were doing anything illegal, but just because they were in existence. And at the time, it was illegal in all 50 states for you to be gay or lesbian. And not only that, but to be cross-dressing in any way was also against the law. If you were not wearing the articles of clothing according to the gender you were assigned at birth, that was a reason for arrest as well. And so when the New York police came in to the Stonewall Inn, uh, there was great defiance and resistance, not because it was that particular night or not because of anything in particular the police did, but just after uh, a systemic many, many years of oppression and discrimination and prejudice, Enough people were fed up to the point of doing something to fight back, not about that particular night, but about everything that had occurred to them throughout their lifetimes. And it's really important to note how it started. Uh, The very first punch, a black lesbian by the name of Stormy Larvery, she threw the first punch. It was a black lesbian who threw the first punch. And after that, Marsha Johnson, an African-American transgender woman, well, she threw the first brick. And after that, Sylvia Rivera, uh, transgender Latina, she threw the first Molotov cocktail that really got the party started for the next three nights. So it was women of color who sparked and created 
the very first resistance at the Stonewall Inn. Don't let anybody fool you that it was cisgender white men, although they were there and they were definitely part of it. And they certainly suffered the same brutality at the hands of the New York Police Department. But it was women of color who led the charge at the Stonewall in that night. It's really important for us to acknowledge that and remember that and to not have our history revised in any which way. So uh, happy Pride, everybody. Whether you identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, gender nonconforming, queer, however, or straight ally. I got to always mention my dear straight ally, my Jason here, my producer. Hey. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> however you identify, uh, have a very happy Pride Month, and uh, hopefully we all link arms and continue the battle and the struggle, because it is real, fighting Trumpism, not just here in this country, but oppression all over the world. Next week, got a great lineup of guests coming in. Lori McBride, who led the Life Lobby in the 1990s, fighting for gay rights here in California. David Assay from New York City about uh, categorizing and collecting stories from LGBT seniors. And the cast of Shining Star, the gay musical opening here in Los Angeles on the porn industry. Uh, the cast is going to come in. Won't mean a thing to Jason, but uh, it may get my blood pressure up just a bit. So that'll be next Friday. Have a great Memorial Day weekend honoring those veterans who gave their lives for our country, LGBT veterans especially. And we'll see you all next next week here on Sidebar with John Duran on the new Channel Q.